0: to Singing the Blues. I'm Dom Housen, And I'm James Marriott. Now, um, Dom, we said last week we've never actually had guests on the show before. We've had a a couple of stand-ins when you've been off at many and varied weddings before, uh, but it's still always just been um, a duo. So today we have uh, not one but two guests. It's, I guess, a bit of a special episode today as we kind of talk about all things... EFL charge and hearing and probably further to that a little kind of look at the legal implications about the current situation that we find ourselves in with regards to the coronavirus so do you want to introduce our first guest?
1: Yes uh, thank you James I get the honour of introducing the first guest and uh, I spoke to him very recently for a piece that I did for Yorkshire Live and it's great to uh, catch up and have a word with sports lawyer Kevin Carpenter so thank you Kevin for joining us. How are you?
2: Uh, very well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Dom. Yeah, it's been. Um, yeah, I think the only positive of this has been watching through some um, vintage Sheffield Wednesday, where we tend to win. So I've been uh, quite been enjoying that. Really, there's, there's less uh, less uncertainty about the Saturday results.
1: <laughs> I think we've all enjoyed
0: that. I- We do like a little bit of living in the past, don't we? It's a bit of a Sheffield Wednesday thing. Um, So also joining as well is Oliver Saxon. Now, Oliver is the driving force behind title law, who are, of course, our main partners on Singing the Blues. Um, Oliver, uh, I mean, you don't specialise in sports law as such, but obviously it is something that you've been following.
3: Yeah, that's right. I'm not a a sports player like Kevin, but I, I do have an understanding of the legal process through being a solicitor.
0: Okay, cool. Right. Important bits first. Um, are you a Kevin or a Kev?
2: Either's fine with me. Whatever, Whatever's easiest.
0: <laughs> all right. And uh, Oliver or Ollie?
3: Ollie. Only my dad calls me Oliver.
1: Great. <laughs> and uh, Dominic or Dom? Dom all day, every day. My dad thought it'd be funny to call me Dominic, so then give people the option of calling me Dom, Dominic or Nick. And only my gran ever called me Nick. So, uh, yeah, you should know by now, James, Dom is is, is the way forward. (laughs) Whereas yours is argumentative so-and-so, as we all know.
0: Okay then, uh, right let's set the scene then. I doubt we particularly need to to do this, but for, for the sake of thoroughness, so once upon a time, uh, there was a football team who had a great season, nearly got promoted to the Premier League, but lost in the playoff final so that club then really went for it the following season and bought a lot of expensive players, most of whom turned out to be a little bit rubbish and they still haven't been promoted. Now the financial effect of all this is that said club would have breached the limit of allowed losses in their FFP or PNS accounts by many million pounds. Club finds a way around punishment by owner effectively buying club stadium therefore injecting many, many million pounds back into the accounts. However, something goes wrong, and after a long time having a good old think about it, EFL decide to charge said club. Uh, Side note, EFL also charge owner and a couple of other individuals, and then change their mind. Charge against the club rumbles on and on, coronavirus pushes it back further, and, I mean, that's pretty much where we find ourselves now. It's a very abridged version, but Dom, do you think that's about right?
1: Yeah, almost there. I, I think there's part of you that actually enjoyed putting that together, James, I must admit.
0: <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Um, all right, I mean, uh, Kev, you understand this a heck of a lot better than um, than than we do. So I'm, I'm sure there's some important elements of that kind of summary that, that were missed out there. So how would you kind of describe the situation that we're in right now? Well, certainly at the moment,
2: we're in the situation where the, obviously the hearing, the, the main hearing is pending. We had this side issue about the disciplinary charges brought against the individuals, which was dropped. I don't think there's too much to be read into that at this stage. Um, I, I'm not sure whether it was wise for the EFL to bring that charge at the, the, this stage of the proceedings. It w- could all have been dealt with together, perhaps. Um, of course, in some of the media statements as well, which to me were drafted by the lawyers rather than by the club, just because of the tone of them, Um, that we also were bringing a claim against the EFL for acting outside of their constitution, essentially, and their powers. That one seems to have gone quiet at the moment. And they they are two separate... Hearing, so there's a that's an arbitration hearing, it's called if it's a dispute between the league and a club um, about something that's not covered particularly by any specific regulations. But obviously, the financial fair play stuff, the uh, financial regulation is covered by and, and sort of a what I would say a normal disciplinary process.
1: Kevin, uh, I'm going to jump in here and just say on the arbitration case, claim, everything, and the club saying it was unlawful and that's the explanation that they gave uh for taking it down sort of that path so, so we we think the arbitration process is over now mm. with the with the um you know Chan and john redgay and katrine mayor that or you know their individual case has been dropped so we now do just think that it's a case of it's going to be the Independent Disciplinary Commission.
2: Yeah, Again. I mean, I was under the impression that we also brought a, se- a separate sort of counter-arbitration claim following the charge against the individuals. Now, I don't remember that being mentioned in the, the in our usual sort of Friday night uh, statement that we like to make and when nobody's really paying attention. Um, so, but but yeah, the, the the key issue is still at this stage the the, the disciplinary hearing.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, I, I'm I'm gonna kind of probably go over things that um, have been talked about many times, but I, I feel are kind of important because what we want this to be is, is is thorough. So anyone that maybe does still doesn't quite understand the ins and outs of all this, that we answer every question. So, and uh, uh, Kev, this this is probably one for you, but Ollie, if if, if you want to jump in on it as well, please please do. But we obviously submitted our um, accounts way back when. Um, I, I, I can't even remember where it was. It feels like such a long time ago. And they were initially accepted by the EFL. The, mm-hmm. the club obviously claimed that they'd previously been in dialogue with the EFL about what they were doing. They were quite open about their plans to include the sale and leaseback of the stadium. And that was seemingly accepted by the EFL. And then uh, a number of weeks or months later... The, the charge comes about and the EFL appear to just go back on their word and kind of change their minds about it. So um, what what is the kind of the reality of that? Is it as simple as the EFL just saying, oh, actually, we kind of got that wrong and we shouldn't have signed it off? Or is there something particularly about the way that it was done that when the EFL looked back upon it, they said, well, actually, you didn't do this the way that you said you were going to do it? I think
2: that going back on their word sort of phrase you used there, uh, maybe not deliberately, was um, is probably where the, the, the sort of crux of it is for me. Because, as you say, we were clearly under the impression from, and it seems from Sean Harvey, the former uh, head of the EFL, who's now obviously been uh, replaced by Rick Parry, that this was fine. They were fully aware of one, the value that we were going to give to the stadium and to what accounting year it was going to go into to make sure we didn't breach the, the, uh, the limit that's allowed. Now, if it's a case of one person's word, I would find it strange that the club would act simply on his word verbally. You would always want that followed up in writing. I'm sure Ollie can um, see sort of back up whether, well, what I'm saying is right, but, I do think there must be an email or a letter or something that exists that either says this was fine or it wasn't. If they have said it's fine, then the the, the concept of legitimate expectation. So once you've been told something's within the rules, they can't go back on that unless new evidence has come to light subsequently. So, Either that evidence doesn't exist and it's a matter of sort of a verbal discussion between the chief executive, the chair or whoever within the club, the lawyers with Sean Harvey at the time. Or whether something else has come to light which makes them doubt whether or not we were truthful about it or the way we've recorded it when the accounts were finally published. That would be my interpretation of it at the moment.
3: I would agree with that. There's not a time that I've ever done a transaction for a client where we've not liaised with the other party involved, or if there's a third party involved with those so that they were fully aware of what we were doing and why we were doing it. And particularly in it, something that was clearly going to be as contentious as this is um, quite why all of a sudden Wensley's lawyers who will be very well paid, I would imagine, and not regular high street lawyers, um, would even risk taking the action and giving the advice that they will have given to the club without having something from the EFL. I I can't see that not being the case. Now, whether that's a file note or um, an email, that's led to be seen. Um, But certainly I would have some expectation that there'd be some documentation between the club and the EFL saying, this is what we want to do, is this okay? And the EFL saying yes. Otherwise, the lawyers just wouldn't have advised to do it.
1: And the accounts, they must have been signed off going back to last summer when you consider that Julian Burner and Kadeem Harris, Moses Odebajo, they all signed and arrived on a free transfer. And there's no way that the EFL would have given Wednesday the green light had they not signed off on the accounts. Is it? Is that right, guys? Sure. I mean, that's always been my interpretation. That going back to last summer, that they certainly at that point around the July period, they were okay with the with Wednesday's accounts.
2: The, the one the one piece of um, the one sort of transaction or potential piece of evidence which I do remember reading about earlier on in this process which I don't seem to it has seemed to have been mentioned recently. but there the seems to have been some intimation that this had been triggered by when the uh, documents and the, the change had been made at the land registry about the stadium. And therefore, whether we tried to backdate it and if that was reflected in the accounts properly or not, I don't know whether that's what potentially flagged it to the EFL to reopen the case um, and, and whether we've tried to maybe act outside or, or or push the boundaries further than the sort of consent that was given or the assurances that were given, which has now led to this next stage. But That, that seems to have gone quite but I do remember the, the land registry reg, um, transaction being part of the part of the issue financially I
3: I think the problem there was that the company who eventually owned it didn't exist until a good 12 months after the accounts would have been, or the the period for that accounts were submitted Um, but again I can't understand why uh, as a lawyer you would take that step knowing the consequences for your client without liaising with the EFL in this, it's not like Sheffield Wednesday, the first club to be up against the PNS rules, there are precedents of what happens if you break it. Um, it. It just doesn't make sense to why you would take the risk without giving the advice to the club that I either it is a risk or that we can do this.
1: Yeah. Kevin Kev, how big an impact has Rick Parry, when he came in and took over as EFL chairman, had on the EFL charge against Wednesday? it's clearly
2: um one of his main policies or one of his main objectives um as part of the you know his his first year in the job uh, pre pre covid issues coming along um he's been very very clear that going after birmingham again derby county was that this is something that and i think his evidence that he gave before MPs in the week which was again was mainly about which was prompted by COVID, but really talking about the state of finances in the EFL and particularly in the Championship, um, he, he essentially said it's it, you know it's crazy what's going on and it needs to be brought in line um, and with also targeting things like parachute payments. So he just he's just really looking to bring it onto a more sustainable and sensible footing, which it's difficult to um, to disagree with because the Championship really is probably the, the craziest league in the world in terms of financials of it.
0: So, I mean, it, it's kind of fair to say this has been something that's been rumbling on now for ages. And it, and it feels like it was like, you know, months and months, maybe even years ago, that all this kind of kicked off and, and started. And as time's gone by, I think as fans, we've maybe kind of thought, well, the longer it goes on, it's going to be all right. What, what are we looking at in terms of the potential punishments here? Um, what, what is the kind of the scope of this?
2: Well, it's it's quite broad. I mean, the powers that a disciplinary commission have are quite broad because I've I've sat on one of these recently, um, one of the one of the dis- independent disciplinary commissions, and really you're given quite a lot of leeway as to which way you're going to go with it. But obviously, as the if if the charges were found to be proven, you would then move on to the issue about sanction, and. Um, the EFR will presumably put forward various other recent cases or similar cases from. Um, even other leagues perhaps to talk about <clears throat> what the points might be. Um, but I think we're looking at a maximum of 21 points in the worst case scenario. I think that's a kind of what's called an aggravated breach. So if our conduct was seen to have been in some way, if we were trying to mislead or we weren't being completely honest with the EFL, there could be an aggravated breach. Other than that, you're looking more between the 9 to 15 range, I would say, um, depending on... How much it's said that we've over potentially overvalued the stadium. Um, because to me, 60 million feels i i I'm not a real estate agent by any stretch of the imagination, but it seems a lot to me from what other people who are more sort of football finance experts say. Um, so yeah, that's that's the position really. I think it's anything ranging from a, a nine to a 21 pointer. Do you think that Kev that
1: that's? sort of the the big one as far as the efl concerned the valuation of the stadium is, is that what they're particularly going to be looking at
2: it's difficult to tell really because because the charges other than that they're only they only tell them in a very broad sense that you've breached the regulations they don't give you any detail but but the two issues seem to be the valuation and the timing now the, the two of them can be dealt with separately in a way. I mean, you know, the, the valuation is a separate issue. It's then if they decide that it's a huge overvaluation, well, what, what what how does that impact the accounts that we submitted? And then what period should it fall into? So there's potentially quite a few steps to go through to determine what the size of the, the breach might be.
0: Ollie, I mean, obviously you you cover a much kind of wider scope in terms of um, legalities. Um, what's your kind of thought, and what, and what's the the thought from the wider legal world in in terms of not necessarily just this, but I guess sports law as a whole, because you know it it feels like this is the kind of thing that. Um, you know it was uh, initially there was an agreement in place and there's been talking statements about you know emails and things like like that that if this was another kind of legal matter it would almost be thrown out because it seems almost quite you know comical and it appears that you know a change in chief exec has changed the direction that they want to to go in from a wider legal perspective how do you kind of view all this
3: it's not it's not unheard of or people to change the mind and bring actions when they say that they're not going to um essentially though as a lawyer what you're looking for is it's clearly the evidence on both sides to justify whether you can bring about that cause of action and you wouldn't unnecessarily waste your client's costs bringing something that you didn't think was going to be successful And that's ultimately what this comes down to now this you can speculate that maybe the efl under the previous regime have been too lax and too loose about applying all their rules, which when you look at things other than um, FFP, for example, the the Stevenage case that was um, decided in the last couple of days that Nick DiMarco has been acting on, where they had three players caught up for international duty, a game postponed, and the EFL were going after them for points deduction on that. It might be that the EFL under Rick Parry have now decided that they're going to be more robust and try and, instead of walking softly and carrying a big stick, just carry the big stick um, and attempt to impose their will on everybody with an intention of grasping the leagues as a collective and saying that you're all going to play by the rules and we're not going to turn a blind eye to people, bending them in their favour, like might have been happening before. Um, but certainly in terms of an ordinary cost of events you wouldn't be wasting your clients costs if you didn't think you had a a claim equally Um, which you could say about both parties in this instance although it's different really for, for Wednesday because even if you thought you were facing a spurious claim you can't really just lie down and accept it because the consequences in this instance are far too severe for the club to do so
1: yeah Kevin, I was going to jump in and ask you about, you said before that you sat in recently on a, an independent disciplinary commission. Mm-hmm. What what are they like? What do they sort of consist of? How many people sit on these commissions? Uh, and I suppose the final question would be, uh, how long would it take the, ind- the independent disciplinary commission when it is up and running?
2: So yeah, I actually I, I sat on the Stevenage panel, um, and obviously it was a little bit unusual because it was one of the uh, the sort of first ones of this type to be held via uh, Zoom because of the situation we're in. And actually, the um, initially um, Stevenage were keen to try and get this potentially postponed until we could have an in-person hearing because it did involve. Seen witnesses. And although we were sympathetic to that point, I think ultimately we decided there was no particular prejudice in holding it via video conference. But I think every single um, club or every single person who faces any sort of legal action at the moment will say, oh, it's not fair to hold it via by by a video conference. But the reality is you have to move things forward somehow. Um, it was actually that these hearings are very professional. Um, there is a, a secretariat that runs it on behalf of the EFL um, and somebody who manages the process on the day, manages the connections and everything and we had so there was the chair, myself and another lawyer on the panel there was a barrister for the EFL um, the EFL's in-house legal counsel and then two or three witnesses and then there were five or six witnesses on the other side, on the Stevenage side, plus their barrister and it took nearly eight and a half hours. So, um, it was a full day essentially. And I suspect you'd be talking at least a day, if not more, given the, um, the seriousness of what's on the line. Um, and as I say, again, it's, it, it's uh, it's a long day. <laughs> I have to say it's a long <laughs> day. They, 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 do fact that you know, you do factor breaks and stuff, but mm-hmm. you do get a lot of documents in advance. Uh, to read through, and there's lots of cases to go through, and um, but but always whenever you're deciding these cases, if anything's on paper, if there's any documentary evidence, that will normally have greater weight given to it than anything that's said um, verbally or anything that's even said by way of um, evidence orally at a hearing, unless it's cross examination. You do have proper cross examination of the witnesses. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a very professional process. Sports legal proceedings, sports regulatory, disciplinary proceedings are now very formal and very advanced in that sense.
1: And you said that you uh, have been on the Stevenage case with Nick DeMarco, who is representing Wednesday, as we know, and, and you have known him for a number of years. How good mm-hmm. is Nick? Uh, and uh, has he actually told you anything about the Wednesday case that you want to share with us?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no no he hasn't um i, I didn't know he was going to be on the stevenish case until uh, until i don't think he was instructed until pretty late on in the matter um but nick is yeah he, when i first i've been working this area for kind of 10 years now when i first knew him he was fairly junior but he's risen up through the ranks um and now his practice is 100 sports related matters and probably sort of of that's football Um, there's very few significant football cases either FA or EFL that don't have him involved in it these days Um, so yeah he's very well versed in the regulations Um, and I I don't know whether you saw also there was a charge brought against one of the Cowley brothers for Huddersfield Town which he was involved with defending him and that got dropped so uh, I think he's a bit of a thorn in the EFL side at the moment I saw from somebody that the other day
3: on, on Twitter, according to Lionel Messi of Sports Law. Oh, I saw that, um, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, he'll enjoy that. <laughs> but, it was, uh, <laughs> but as I always say in these things, and as Ollie will know, it's it's as much about the strength of your case as how you yes. argue it. Um,
3: so it helps. It helps to have a skilled advocate put forward yeah, your argument, uh, but it is about. It's more about the strength of it, and uh, from I first came across. Nick DeMarco was. I always wanted to get into sports law, but never really was able to push the door open. And um, so I started following Nick on Twitter when he was um, just getting into it. And uh, for people who follow him, you all know that he supports QPR and ended up being instructed yes. by them in relation to their uh, original breach. And that's kind of off the back of that, it seems his, his sports practice has just mm. grown and grown. And good luck to him. Mm
1: gonna ask you Ollie, from the outside looking in how, how surprised are you that it, we are at this point with the wednesday f l charge of where it's now been over well nearly six months since the were charge and it still hasn't been dealt with
3: not surprised at all um you would do everything you could to try and put your client in the best possible position you could to get the result for the best possible result for the, the client. And certainly, uh, in my view, the EFL might have shot themselves in the foot by going after the directors personally because not only did they upset Mr. Chancery when they uh, took their action against the club, but then to do it against him and his directors probably put his back up even more, which meant all the associated legal problems and counterclaims all came with it and it just becomes a minefield that you are then legitimately able to push things down the road and try and get it as far away from the point that you need to get it to as possible and there's no doubt there's an element of stalling involved in this not necessarily the, well, now we've been stuck with the with the COVID-19 uh, scenario as well but that isn't or it shouldn't stall matters because of that. Um, certainly, in ordinary civil litigation, trials are ongoing um, through um, teams and Skype for business, and the Ministry of Justice is really pushing ahead with that. So, if it could happen in um, regular courts, as no and as Kev described earlier, this, this Stephen's case happened via Zoom or, or Skype. So, it's perfectly possible to progress justice without necessarily being there. Uh, but you would look to try and extract the maximum um, that you could possibly get for your client, because that's what you paid to do.
0: Okay, um, just picking up slightly on on that, because you know if we if we didn't think that this whole situation was complicated enough and had dragged on for long enough, along comes the coronavirus situation, which obviously pushes things back even more. So what I'm interested in here is. What the the potential implications of that are now? Um, that's that's not getting on to talking about the implications of coronavirus in football generally, and I'm sure we'll we'll discuss that a little bit later on. Um, but obviously, there is a question mark about you know how the season will be concluded if the season will be concluded and, and what all that means um and also what i'm thinking here is that i'd heard a lot of people say that it's and i don't know if this is right or not that um if if the cases had been kind of wrapped up and sorted by the end of march then the point deduction would have applied for this season but if it drags on after march then the point deduction um effectively is at the start of the following season now COVID-19 comes along and everything is just a mess, including this idea of, you know, March being kind of the end point of the main bit of the season and then anything after that pushes over to next season. So, um what what are the implications of of that? How on earth are they going to decide if there is a point deduction whether it applies to the current season, whether it's finished or not finished, and if it's not finished and we just work from current points, how is the point deduction applied? to that. These are probably questions that are impossible to answer, I don't know. Um, but then if, if it does end up being applied to next season, surely there's grounds there for the club to uh, appeal and say, well, it would have been wrapped up before the end of March, if not for coronavirus, so actually it should be applied to last season, if if it turns out that you know the deduction wouldn't be enough to take the club down. It feels like whatever happens as a result of this now, that, this, that there is going to be appeal after appeal and all kinds of legal implications from the situation we find ourselves in.
2: Yeah, I think from my perspective, the, the the whole COVID situation, I mean, my my view before this came along was that it would have to be applied this season, so the season that we're still currently in, um, and it would be ultimately unfair and probably unnecessary really to, to push it into next year. But now... I think with so much uncertainty about how the league is going to be concluded, what the system is going to be to calculate the results if they don't play on, when the next season is going to start, I don't know whether you, you just apply the sanction as and when the hearing and the appeal is exhausted. And that may be, it could be this season, but it's unlikely. It's more likely to now be to be next season. Ultimately, for me, it comes down to the integrity of the league. And I think any anything to do with COVID is about maintaining the integrity of the competition. Um, at the end of the day, the FL's a members' association. The member clubs of the championship will not be happy at all if we if we are found to have breached regulations, been charged in one season, um, and then it applies to the next season. So there'll be all sorts of political issues happening with the um, with that side of it. I think.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that, Um, although I think that there's some doubt as to whether the points deduction and the March deadline applies or whether people are drawing um, inference from that's when, if you went into administration, that sort of deadline for when points deduction applies for the season. But I, I think that whatever would have happened, it would have been difficult for points to have been deducted this season because if it goes against Sheffield Wednesday then there's no way Sheffield Wednesday are going to lay down and accept that and it will go to appeal. Now, if given how long this has took to get to this point and appeal is not going to be dealt with quickly um, (laughs) so then you're left with potentially in the worst case Sheffield Wednesday getting relegated and then starting next season in League One winning their appeal And then where where does the league start then? They can't put 25 teams in the championship. Um, So it it becomes even more messy. I think the likelihood is, because how it has progressed towards the end of the season, in any event, it probably would have been applied next year um, just to make sure that the competition was was dealt with in all scenarios. But I think in this scenario, particularly with regards to COVID, it's, it's definitely going to have to apply next year now.
0: Okay and right bear with me on this I don't know if I'm trying to find a little silver lining here that might not be there but does we might have passed the point of this being possible but does this situation that we find ourselves in with coronavirus actually play into the clubs hands and what I'm thinking here is is there is there an increased chance that the EFL will settle For a softer agreed punishment that might not even include a points deduction just to avoid the likely lengthy legal implications from, you know, if this hearing does conclude right through to its end and issue uh, a points deduction. Is there an increased chance of, of Wednesday and the EFL coming to an out of courts agreement before that point of no return?
3: I can't say it from Rick Parry's pronouncements. He's clearly come in with an effort to bring the league under control. And if the league and Wednesday were to fudge the issue just for satisfying um, the current circumstances, it would A, undermine Parry's whole um, regime change, uh, and B, lead other clubs in a similar scenario in the future to say, well this is what you did with Sheffield Wednesday, why can't we have some of that? In which case, FFP, just, you might as well not bother with.
2: Yeah, I think I think the only possible change, the, the only possible thing to add to that is that, of course, we know that football is an industry, and I'm sure the AFL is no different, financially are in dire situation the longer this goes on um, they're going to have both sides are going to have legal bills racking up it's been going on a while already um, and would they if it comes to a financial penalty rather than a points deduction would they like to get that cash in now it, it's, it's pure speculation on my part but that's that's the only possible way that I think there would be any change to the, the position because you would have thought by now they would have come to an agreement otherwise why, why drag it on this long
3: I think they've backed themselves into a corner with regards to the other member clubs as well who are being particularly vocal about what Sheffield Wednesday and Derby and Villa even may or may not have done. And for them to, because of the circumstances, just agree a financial settlement probably isn't going to satisfy the clubs who are being more vocal about uh, the charges that Wednesday being brought under.
1: It also gets to a point as well where surely... The EFL need a win publicly. Right? The, the, you look at the Stevenage case, look at Birmingham's, uh, that's Baltimore. been overturned as well. So I, I think for the reputation of the league, I think that's part of the other reason why they're not going to weigh down and, and go away quietly on this one. Is that uh, you, you look at it, you know, we know about Wednesday, the reputation and everything that, you know, the, that they'd be looking at this and thinking that their name's been dragged through the mud. Well, the EFL, they can't have it. So imagine if they were to lose this case and then you've still got the Derby one that needs to be settled. And I'm sure there'll be other instances as well in the future. Then it, it that's, I, I think, where you, you're almost at the point of where, not an impasse, it's the stubbornness on both sides, I think, is what we're seeing here. It's, this is properly two balls colliding, isn't it, really? I think that's the way to look at it. i tell you what, I mean, I do, don't know what you think, Kevin Olley. Do you think it's nailed on, though, after all of this, that the the loophole of the sale and the lease back of the stadium, that the, the league will be moving very quickly to close this loophole after they've dealt with Derby on Wednesday?
2: it's very strange how it came in in the first place because it was outlawed until a couple of seasons ago and then all of a sudden um, it came into the regulations and there seemed to be no public announcement or, or, or information about why um, it's certainly outlawed at the UEFA level in terms of their regulations so um, but but again, it comes down to the um, it comes down to the member clubs and getting the majority and probably because there's only a small amount of teams that can benefit from this loophole. Then yes, I'm sure now the now it's been highlighted, uh, many of the other teams will be pushing for it to be closed.
3: I would agree with that, and I think that it's probably inevitable that the lawyers and accountants will look for another loophole to exploit, just because that's what ultimately we're all paid to do.
0: Okay. Um, Right, this is the question you're going to absolutely hate if you were a betting man what do you think the most likely outcome of all this is and if you think it's kind of too difficult to predict exactly um, what do you think is the likelihood that be it this season or next season Sheffield Wednesday ultimately find themselves in League One as a result of this
2: Who wants to take that first? (laughs) (laughs) I'll uh, I'll go um, my view from the start and I've always um, been slightly sceptical about some of Sheffield Wednesday's sort of movements under of Ziri and the late final accounts and all the just the general picture of how we've been run in recent years um, off the pitch um, it would seem very strange Rick Parry's an extremely smart man who I would find it surprising that he would bring this unless he thought there was a very good chance they'd win. Would be my view of it. So on that basis, um, I, and again, it's a balance of probabilities. So it's only a, it's only more than fifty. You know, fifty plus one percent. If I was going to say now, I'd say we probably will. They will find us in breach. Um, but it's 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 a it's a coin toss at the moment. I think um, I, I, just, I just don't understand the motive in the EFL really
3: pushing it if
2: they don't think they've got a very good chance of winning it.
3: I'd agree with that. I think I can't see them bringing a claim if they don't think they're, they're going to be successful. Um, they're not exactly the, the richest body um, who can afford to waste the fees anyway. But equally, I suppose that they've got to be seen to be doing something, even if it is, well, at least we tried. But they're, um, they're not giving up with Birmingham which gives us all cause for concern. Even um, I, I think I would probably come down on I think it's we are going to get some sort of deduction, but it, a lot will depend on the evidence that Wednesday can submit pertaining to the discussions that they had with Sean Harvey's EFL.
0: Okay. Um, uh, Moving on to kind of a, a slightly wider subject now than about where we find ourselves uh, in football, right now and and and, Dom and I you know we've we've talked about this much over the last few weeks as we've kind of been reflecting on everything that's been um sort of going on um i mean there's so many questions um uh, focusing purely on the financial aspects of it how does ffp pns how does that work after this i mean looking forward every club financially is going to be hit by what's going on right now if we're looking at potentially up to You know, several months, maybe up to twelve months of football behind closed doors. We're still at a level where the money that comes in through attendance is significant. How just how does PNS work after this? I mean, that whatever happens now, there are going to be legal implications galore. Surely, you know, whoever is relegated or misses out on promotion not necessarily just this season but maybe even next season that there's going to be all kinds of different legal challenges surely, isn't there?
3: Well, uh, they're already discussing it in, in some leagues aren't they, about what happens if people don't go up or they don't get relegated or the TV money doesn't come through um, I think certainly from an FFP point of view what it, it, this period without the income it's relatively easy to add on to acceptable losses because you can take the average over the last three years' worth of accounts and say, well, that's what you would have earned in this period. So therefore, we'll add that on as though you would have earned it in terms of dealing with the losses. That seems like the logical way of trying to balance it, um, particularly the further, although it doesn't apply stringently, the further down the pyramid as you go. But certainly in the championship, I can see that being one potential solution. But there is no scenario that I can see at the champ between the championship and the Premier League that doesn't involve expensive litigation because the prize for getting in the premiership or coming out of the premiership is far too much for clubs to just accept it I mean, we're already seeing the six at the bottom of the Premier League saying well we're not going to play in neutral venues because we'll lose our home advantage um, they only need to bring one more club on board and they can stop that from happening now what that implication has for their tv deal with sky and other rights holders around the world um, i couldn't say because i don't have the documents in front of me but it certainly makes it more more difficult if you are a team for example who finishes ninth and would have got a higher share of the tv contract compared to somebody who finished 14th what do you do about that um because you would have been entitled to that prize money, you're not going to get it now.
2: Yeah, I think from my side, I'm, I'm not aware of anything in the FF, uh, in the regulations, the football league regulations, about any sort of, um, we've heard the phrase force majeure a lot recently, and whether that whether there's a possibility to freeze it, I think it's all, all up in the air. Um, one thing that I know Rick Perry's mentioned, and I, th- I think it can be used as a potential um sort of shot in the arm for a p- possible salary cap discussions for, for championship clubs in particular, which again need the agreement of the members because it's it's sort of uh, it's it's not legal um to have a salary cap without some sort of agreement between the people you can't just impose it. So um but but we're looking at a completely different Landscape going forward, um, and then the issue about the promotion relegation. <clears throat> I was actually discussing this with my, my dad last weekend, and I think obviously we've already got the situation where Barry dropped out of the league, so they're having to sort it out at that level. You then have to sort it out. This talk about regionalising leagues, one, league two, possibly the national league as well. So that the whole pyramid structure and all the tiers are probably have to be looked at again, because. As, as Ollie choirly said, if the Premier League choose not to play on and the three current relegated teams refuse essentially to go down or bring a legal challenge, then do you have 23 in the Premier League next year and have six relegated? I mean that's that's potentially only the one of the few scenarios I can see which you might be able to find some common ground on. but then where does the rest of the leagues fit in it's, it's a real it's a real mess if they don't come up with a system. Um, and, and the real disappointing thing with my sort of governance hat on again is that this talk that the FA has some sort of um, veto about the, the Premier League saying there's no relegation, but the, this this agreement between the Premier League, the Football League and the FA isn't public. We really need the FA to step up and take control of it because if they just let the Premier League decide who can and can't go up or they're just not going to have promotion and relegation, well you're getting towards a closed league system you're basically saying you're starting to get to a point where you're operating a cartel basically as as a league and then it's a closed shop and that's never been part of the uh, part of the system
3: that's the danger if you let the Premier League decide that there's no relegation and no promotion this year then the argument then becomes next year well we're not doing it then either um because the financial rewards in the Premier League you, you wouldn't vote to remove yourself from that um, and that self-interest is is playing out now but I, I would agree with Kev that some sort of reckoning is coming for certainly below the Premier League in terms of salary capping or, or, or costs and, and to be honest it needs doing um, it needed doing a long, long time before that I think even when we first came down 20 years ago with our parachute payments although we squandered them quite <laughs> badly um, it it was distorting the league then and as the prize funds got up in the Premier League it's just continued to distort it even further and went out to the point where it's not just the parachute payments that are distorting the Championship it's the excessive wages that players are on in the Premier League that then has a knockdown affecting the Championship as to why we've got some players on 25, 30,000 pounds a week in the, in the second tier of English football. When seven years ago, if you'd have said that, people would have looked at you sideways and thought, What are you talking about? There's no way a, a team in the, the Championships ever going to pay someone that kind of money um, because you'd just be left. Laugh- you'd just be like, Well, they're going to go bankrupt. Um, but that financial distortion is really, it's played havoc. It affects. The further down the league that you go, because what happens in the championship where players are earning, well, five-figure sums a week, if you have a team from League One that comes up, they can't afford to pay those wages. So if they want to stay up, they've got to have a try, and then they ended up saddling themselves with long contracts. But then agents are playing one off against the other all the way down the pyramid to make it unsustainable, really
1: wait, sorry, you mentioned contracts then, that neatly brings us on to the uh, players out of contracts, June the 30th, what is going to happen, What, what, with your legal hats on, Owe and Kev, what do you think they're going to do?
3: It's up to the EFL. I think they've got and the, and the FA generally. There's going to have to be, depending on what they decide to do in the next couple of weeks about whether they're going to continue the season or extend it. It appears that they're not going to to finish the league in League One and Two, which makes that decision simpler in terms of contracts at that level. Um, but whether you would, you can't unilaterally increase someone's employment contract. It has to be an agreement between both parties. Um, so if you're a player who is coming to the end of their contract and your club says to you, well, look, we want you to play for another month, um, would you accept that knowing that you could pick up an injury that then puts you out of action for maybe a season and then you're not going to get another club? <laughs> it's it's yeah, difficult.
1: Because uh, interestingly, uh, sorry, I was just going to interject there just to say that this week, actually, Jerry Pellipessi as an example for Wednesday said that he would be happy to sign uh, a short-term contract extension probably a lot of Wednesday fans out there would go not surprised he would say that um, but <laughs> um, he, he, he said that uh, I don't actually know of many other players who've said who've said the same but I mean Ori makes that point there that I mean that's surely where if you're a player in the back of your mind or where you're thinking that yeah you might get another month's employment out of that club but then what's going to happen in the future what happens if you get injured so surely that I mean that's well, there's going to be the huge problem there, isn't there, Kev? What do you think?
2: Yeah, well, I, I was looking at this a bit earlier, and I mean, FIFA have come out in the in this period and said that for all leagues, essentially, you know, our preference would be that you stay with the same team until the end of the season, whenever it ends. But ultimately, they admitted that it's subject to national law. Now, I think the position is fairly clear that once the contract expires, that's it. If they don't want to carry on, they don't have to carry on. Um, and coming back to this integrity of the league point, that that's a real concern if you if you do decide to start up again, although that's looking increasingly unlikely. I mean, if you look at rugby, for example, they've had two or three high-profile transfers where they've said they're going to move clubs on the 1st of July and they'll be playing for the other team once they start playing again, which seems a very odd situation to me. Um, So, I mean, a, a bigger concern for clubs like ours, I think, is where you have players who are on big wages who have got more than a one or what, you know, whose contracts aren't out this this summer because your revenue is going to nosedive. The bottom's going to fall out the transfer market. So we didn't have many saleable assets before this. So the ones that we did have are probably worth a lot less. Um, So where do you then recoup the money and how do you pay these huge wages that some of the players are on? Because I I just think, you know, I really do think, although eventually there had to be some sort of levelling out of the market, it couldn't just keep going and going. This is going to be a real hit and the the transfer values will just drop through the floor. I can't see any other way
0: it's going to happen shall we um, shall we cheer ourselves up and talk about the actual football for a bit because that's been great hasn't it can't see any reason why uh, that would depress us any further um, Yeah, I mean obviously what, what I guess what we didn't clarify at the start of all this although I would hope it's been fairly obvious is that you are both Wednesday fans um, forgetting all about the, the many and varied things that are going on off the pitch what have been your kind of verdicts of what's been happening on it this season and um, Kev I'll ask you first yeah um i mean it,
2: it's <laughs> the, the more you sort of reflect on it now to think where we were at christmas to where we were when the season ended it's a it's a, dr- a dramatic drop of the lights i'm not sure i've ever known that there's normally some sort of indication that you're gonna start dropping off but it really was just dropping off a cliff and um you know all the noises coming out about being behind i mean i, I wasn't Particularly in favour of Gary Monk taking over when he took over, to be honest, but um, but there's just too many concerning signs about the, the the capitulations and you know some of the defeats. I mean, I went to Wigan away and watching the Luton game, and you know you just think these are games that you've got to get something out of, and there was just no no quality, no desire, no no nothing. It was just terrible, and to go from being nearly top of the league to that is. You know, bizarre, really. So I think we, I think I still thought we were in significant danger if the season carried on.
0: It's hard to disagree with that. By the way, the the scenario that's been kind of rumoured as um, ending the season after twenty three games are played, so that everyone's played each other once and promoting the top three to avoid having to have the playoffs I'm fine with that I think that's a great scenario I think that's how we should end the uh, championship because uh, of course we would have been third in mm-hmm. that uh, in that scenario um, James right, would Ollie you ask once...
1: James sorry would you actually be happy with that because I I, no. I, I, was, I, I it, was it would be the biggest I, miscarriage I, of justice yeah.
0: ever if that was to happen but no, you know but I'm a also, Wednesday fan so of course I want that to happen I
1: know but, but uh, the amount of Wednesday fans the, the response as I got to that from people. Of where, I don't want us to go up We'd be a laughing stock We'd finish with the lowest points ever in the Premier League So um, yeah that, that got laughed out of uh, Laughed at my face that one So uh, yeah um, But I can We can still hang on to it can't we but Yeah. Have, have there been any positive For you this season all What have you made of it <laughs>
3: It's just been quite bland. After I mean the, the most positive thing that I can I can think of was probably the ready match of the first game of the season. That seemed that's the most positive I felt all year, um which is quite sad to say that really. But similar to Kev, I wasn't vastly impressed when we appointed Gary Monk. Um, it just seemed like it was somebody who was available at the time who would come and, and do a job. But even if you say, well, it's beyond his control. Um, what's happened since Boxing Day, and that is the the players have passed it or the uh, the end of the cycle. There may be some element that the squad's gone a bit stale. I wouldn't disagree there, and there does need to be some churn. But two things that strike me and were bothering me before that is we've only since Gary Monk has come in, we've only scored two first half goals at home. And we've only scored four first half goals at home all season. Um, which, for somebody who is meant to play attacking football and make Sheffield, we're not going to worry about the, the opposition. We're going to take the game to them and be aggressive from the first whistle. We scored at home against Stoke in the first half and in the first half against Cardiff. And that's it. Um, and it's just. Durge I've lost Count the amount Of times I've I've texted My friends At half time And gone This is awful This just You would almost Think If this had Been Joss Where we had All the injury Problems You could maybe Give some Excuse for that But We've had The fewest Injury problems We've ever had As a club in In recent memory This season Certainly up till Before Christmas We've had Bar in Forestieri With his Um, suspension basically all the attackers available more or less at the same time and yet we can't score in the first half at home and your home form's got to be what you build your team around and also if you're the manager and you're saying well this is essentially my audition where I get a clean slate at the beginning of next season to bring in the squad that I want and work with the players that I want to I can't get anything out of this lot even though it's the most expensively assembled Sheffield Wednesday team that we can think of, certainly in the last 20 plus years, um, to not even be able to get them to score at home more than twice in the first half, it's, it's, well, it's it's not good enough for me. Um, and I know a lot's made about the average age, but I've had a look at this as well uh, with against teams who got promoted in that since Wednesday got to the playoff final. And uh, Wednesday's average age according to transfer market, it is 27.7 um, as a squad. But their actual match day 11 average age is 28. West Brom's match day 11 is 26. Leeds is 27. Sheffield United's when they got promoted last year, was 28. Burnley, when they won the league, was 29. So the idea that the players are old and, and past it, I can't accept Stephen Fletcher's four days younger than me, and I can't have that. That means that you passed it at sport. Um, (laughs) I think where there's certainly been a problem is the lack of balance in the recruitment and the lack of thought about how you do it, rather than necessarily, well, they're too old. I don't think they are. Um, And I don't think that Monk is necessarily getting the best out of them all or playing them all necessarily to their strengths and... For me, if we were getting rid of the vast majority of them who are out of contract, would I want Gary Monk to rebuild this team and then potentially saddle us with players for another two or three years so we can't move on? No, I wouldn't.
1: <laughs> but as things stand, <clears throat> Gary Monk is going to be the manager whenever this season, next season takes place. So you you touched on recruitment there, All What would you say, Kevin, what change do you want to see at Wednesday,
2: for me, it's it's a lack of medium to long term planning in all aspects of the club. But when we're talking on field, we just haven't seemed to have had a strategy. To me, and this this doesn't help when you're chopping and changing managers. And I think had the Steve Bruce situation worked out differently, it it, it would have been different. So I think he would have probably put a system in place that runs, you know, through the club, and there'd have been a real strategy about how he went about it. But, I mean, the, the, the January transfer window for me was just... I mean, I, I couldn't get excited about Connor Wickham because he's just not scored. And, I, I mean, it's so long since he played a decent amount of games. He just looks off the pace massively and he was never going to be the solution. As far as I can concerned, I didn't understand the recruitment in January. I think it was just to try and placate the fans a bit, really, to get somebody in because I'm not sure he was better than what we got already. Um, and yet, yeah, w- where is this? We we don't have a structure in place for the on-field uh, above the manager. The, the, there's the manager, the chairman, his advisor, and that's it. There's nobody there who will run a strategy that w- works throughout because we're in a hiring and firing football world obviously which I don't agree with broadly <clears throat> but that's what tends to happen so if you're going to do if that, that's the way the managerial system is going to go you have to have somebody who's going to be sat there for like a general manager type that you get in the US sports who sit there and build the strategy regardless of who the manager or coaches are and we, we just don't have that and I don't but think we ever have that- since Chanziri came in
1: uh, but Wednesday, earlier, would, strategy. Well, well, Wednesday would Full say stuff. that that's Amadou out and the, the chairman has talked about him in the last few months, how he's a close advisor and everything, everything, but we know how he splits opinion. And it would appear that Wednesday have no desire, as right now, to bring in, like you're saying, a director of football or chief exec, where but they've still not had a chief exec since... Catherine mayor left in February 2019. Uh, but but you got to think that you're right when you're saying looking at, at the plan, the, the future. So when it comes to the out contract players that Wednesday have, we know that they've got over double figures. You see, how many of those would you guys be keeping? Who Would you be keeping many of them at all? What would you be doing?
3: I would be looking at keeping three of well, other than Cameron Dawson was obviously signed, um the three I would look at keeping are Fletcher and Fox, but Fletcher's got to be on reduced terms, which would be uh, the COVID scenario plays to Wednesdays hand about that. But also I'd be for all his ills and people will disagree with me no doubt, but I would keep Forestieri because I think we would struggle to find anybody of his ability who can change a game even at thirty. For the amount of money that we would have to pay to get him, somebody like that in now, we just wouldn't have available to us. And it's worth keeping on a reduced terms contract for that alone.
1: The counter-argument, oh, we, James and I, we've discussed this at length before, is that when was the last time that Fernando Forestieri consistently performed at Sheffield Wednesday?
3: The last time he had a manager who looked to put an arm around him which some players need. And Gary Monk isn't that type of manager. So if we are sticking with Monk, then Forestier is not going to thrive. But that's another flaw in Monk's ability as a coach in not being able to recognise that he has to treat his players differently depending on their different personalities. Um, in the Two Popes um, Netflix special, the the joke there is, how does an Argentinian kill himself? He jumps off his ego. Um, and... Th- that ultimately that is what forestieri needs somebody to to blow him up and to make him feel special and once somebody does that like carlos did in his first season like steve bruce did when he came in that's when you see the best version of fernando forestieri if you've got somebody who's constantly hempecking him or throwing him chucking him under the bus like carlos did after the norwich debacle then that's when he'll just skulk away and pack his toys in um but you're not going to get somebody of that ability on a free transfer not even in this current market
2: Yeah I, th- I think he would have to be on a significantly reduced wage again I, I'm not I'm not saying I don't think it's been his fault necessarily various things have happened during his time but yeah the, the consistency of performance and selection and for whatever reason it's just not happened and you, you see it in football time and time again where you know where does the blame lie well Probably somewhere between a lot of factors, but ultimately the on-field performance hasn't been good enough. Um, so if he does want a chance to have a run back in the team, then uh, yeah, it's got to be on massively reduced terms. And I, I think other than that, I don't, I don't think I agree much. Uh, dis- disagree much with Ollie really in terms of who we keep. Yeah.
1: So we're saying goodbye to Sam Winno and Ati you, Jerry Pelli, Pessi, Sam Hutchinson. They've got to be pretty ruthless, really, Wenter. I mean, that, this is what we've touched on before, haven't we, James? I mean, that's where we think that there's yeah. got to be some big decisions. I, I, I think we said when we did our sort of dream squad that we'd both have Matt Penny. Don't know what you two think. I'd I quite hard to see Matt Penny be given another year, at least.
3: I'm not <laughs> convinced. I, I, when we went to Lincoln in pre-season we had Matt Penny and Jack Stubbs playing on the left hand side it was like can't defend won't defend um, and even if you're going to play at left wing back, uh, left wing, you're going to have to extract back And that's one of the things that everybody levels at Forestieri that he doesn't come back and help the defence so you can't get rid of him for not doing that and then say well we'll get Matt Penny back in and he'll play a left back when he really doesn't want to be a left back and you can tell by how much he just doesn't stand in the position um for me no i think it's difficult for a lot of the players during
2: Yoss's time because he brought in so many young players who seemed to well, a lot of them seemed to quite you know do do pretty well and quite enjoy getting the first team action and then obviously as soon as we changed manager again they were back in the youth setup so that must be very damaging for their sort of mindset it must be difficult to adjust to life back in the youth system um I think the other player obviously that very much <laughs> um polarizes opinion and my one of my best mates who I watch a lot of the matches with is very pro is Attinewu as a squad player on small wages do you keep him i don't know he, he he keeps trying to convince me but um yeah i'm not i'm not quite sold yet i have to say but um i think he's actually been a better servant than some people might say over the years
0: <laughs> but I think that's probably a fair comment. I think it just it just feels like the time has passed now. We've we've just got to yeah. we've got to move on um, and this is unfortunately it's harsh this is a squad that has ultimately failed in the job that it was meant to do which was get the team promoted to the to the premier league and actually you know what we're kind of it's sort of ending this period of of this nucleus of this squad further away from the premier league than we probably ever have been um and on an awful run of form so I'm not sure that any of the players involved in the current setup, if if they're not offered new contracts or, or let go for whatever reason or maybe shipped out somewhere else, can really complain too much about it because they've just they've just not done they've not done the business and and you know that all all the things that we've talked about through all this, none of this is an issue if on whatever date it was in May 20 whatever it was I can't even remember against Hull if they if you know if, if they turn up and they put that performance in and we're in the Premier League, none of these conversations happen and ultimately whatever does happen from a financial point of view it still has to be on the pitch that we do the talking because the ultimate aim is is for Sheffield Wednesday to be a Premier League club and it feels like we're a long, long way away from that at the moment and a huge turnaround in terms of the, the playing staff has to happen you know we need this fresh start um, you know, it may be that we're starting next season. You know, backs against the walls and and really up against it because of a, a point seduction as we've as we've touched on so many times in this episode. And if that's the case, you know, we need a set of players who are up for that fight, who are, are going to do it. And um, I, I just don't see a, a very few of the current playing squad uh, seem to be those kind of players because when we've hit those challenges this season. They've rolled over and died rather than fighting, and that's just you know that's that's not going to be good enough for us moving forward.
3: It's not just the, the playing squad that needs to be looked at; it's off the off the pitch as well. I mean, there are things that that are easy wins for Sheffield Wednesday that they could implement. Things like having ex, putting portable toilets in the north stand for ladies. I mean, because the, the north stand were designed at a time when women didn't really go to football, and we're now in the 21st century and how easy would it be for them to drop a portal, set of portal that was like they had at medwall behind the north stand to help so that women aren't queuing all the way through the concourse to go to it before we closed down how long was the hole in the um, club shop roof for where we were having a leak through onto the car these are all things that aren't big to sort out but it indicates that there's just no structure and leadership off the pitch from an organisational point of view nobody's taking control or running their department, is it because it's a fiefdom? And unless Mr Chanceria says that's what's happening, it don't get done, I don't know. But there's got to be... We've got to use this period now to try and reform the whole club and make it run fit for purpose for a 21st century club, not spill back when we were in the Premier League last century.
2: I think just to link the... um the sort of on-field and the off-field going back to what it talked about earlier if it is if we do fall foul of the breach i mean we, we do get a points deduction at the start of next season that's going to make recruitment very difficult because how are you going to convince the right quality of player to come in who wants to be in that situation i mean i've been watching um, the sunderland till i died documentary and you only have to see the attitude The players, as soon as they think, oh, we're in a relegation scrap, anyone and they were all on good money. They just don't want to know. I mean, the lone players just left and were like, I'm not interested in being in a battle. So see you later. I think that's a really eye opening um, situation that we could well find ourselves in if we are trying to recruit from the bargain basement and put together a team to scrape, you know, to to stay up really from the start. Um, So that's the other sort of um, unknown at this stage.
1: Definitely. The reality is that the loan market is going to be so important across football, like you say, for the fact with the financial implications with COVID and everything. And uh, when you do look at what Wednesday did in January, that wouldn't, I suppose, inspire as none of them have been big hits. But actually, I think the, the, the two previous windows I thought were much better from Wednesday. So you're right, recruitment is going to have to be so smart and really on point. And when you do look and think of the clear out that Wednesday you're going to have, uh, when you add up the loan players and all those out of contract, you know, you're talking your double figures potentially, that will be leaving Wednesday in the summer. So Wednesday are then going to need to probably bring in a minimum of half a dozen to eight players, whatever. Uh, But then I suppose, wouldn't the counter be that if they're successful with the EFL charge, that I think there might be some funds available. I think Wednesday actually might be financially, if, if things were to go okay with the EFL charge and Wednesday allowed to do business then actually Wednesday with the with the fact that they have got a wealthy benefactor might be in a position to push maybe a bit more than you might think that, you know, compared we'll, to some of the we'll be other rolling Jack, in teams it.
0: Teams Tudor, Tudor books will be back won't they we'll be, we'll be on a, a spending start, spree
2: well, well especially if you get more bang for your buck in a depressed transfer market <laughs> you might be able to get a better standard of player for less money so I'm that's yeah, that's the flip here. side of the coin with
3: that you know there's going to be financial pressures in Leagues 1 and League 2 and some of their better players might be available at a price that Wednesday could now afford just because clubs are going to need to get some income in and as as horrible as that sounds Wednesday if they have got money available are going to have to use a, a bit of a predatory instinct in the market to try and benefit them
1: that's what i would actually love to see happen in the transfer market with wednesday is when was that can any of you think of when was the last time wednesday unearthed a gem from the lower leagues when did wednesday sign a dwight gale or when did wednesday sign you know, i'm talking someone like that who then has, has come in and made a huge impact does just, McEl- Antonio count yeah, pro- probably Mikel Antonio. But then, as we've seen, Wednesday didn't necessarily get the best Mikel Antonio did they? they you know, and he he technically came from the Premier
0: League, didn't he? He came from Reading, who'd yeah were, were a Premier League team. So that that wasn't kind of like unearthing someone from you know the the leagues below. It's it's been I can't think of anyone. It's been a long, long time.
2: I think the last lower league one,
0: Kieran Lee, maybe. Hmm.
2: Is he from Oldham?
0: Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. yeah.
2: So I think he might be the one that is the last team from below our division where we've picked him up and he's really stepped up to the plate.
1: It's what Wednesday have got yeah. to be looking at. They have to be. They just have to work smarter and be shrewd, right? Say, and y- you hope that with everything that has gone on over the last two months or so, that this this is if if ever there's been a time to reassess how you operate and then look to the future and f- f- you know, think of ways of how you can improve and get better then th- this surely has to be it so we'll have to wait and see won't we
0: we will okay i mean obviously this has been a, a longer episode than normal but we've had a lot of stuff to um talk about we'll wrap things up in a minute um first of all before we do um ollie i mean we've been chatting for ages now about saying all right we're gonna on this date we'll do We'll we'll get you in and we'll we'll do an episode with you and um, everything's been against us uh, we'd planned it I think for the beginning of April and then obviously coronavirus comes along and that puts pay to all uh, that so now we've finally got you on we we talk about title law every week we mention you every week um, just I mean tell us a little bit more about what you do and kind of you know what you're up to at the moment
3: uh, well we're A solicitor's practice that people will be familiar with, apart from we don't really have um, an office that people can come to. We are paperless and cloudless, so I go and see clients at their business or their home um, at a time that suits them, really, Um, although obviously I can't do that now. Um, So I'm seeing clients by video link instead. Um, What I do is, um, well, quite a few things. We do dispute resolution, bit of insolvency litigation uh, employment um, wills trusts lasting powers of attorney Um, we don't do crime and we don't do family but pretty much everything but pretty much everything else we do
0: okay great thank you very much Um, so that's going to bring us to a bit of a conclusion for this um, special kind of financial episode of singing the blues Uh, you can of course catch Dom at Dom I'm at James Mario or contact the show at Dom and James. Thank you to our gold sponsor, Title Law, who you can find at, Well I mean, Ollie, you should really do this but shouldn't you?
3: <laughs> uh, TitleLaw.co.uk or at Title Law on social media. Spot Title up. Law, T-Y-T-O Law. That makes sense. Uh, and, <laughs> Kev, where can we find you?
2: Uh, yeah on social media at uh, at Kev Sports Law um, and yeah thanks for having me on it's been, uh, been great to discuss and fill our the uh, usual 3pm Saturday slot with some uh, football chat
0: brilliant thank you very much for joining us we really appreciate it um, of course if you like singing the blues please rate and review the show in your podcast app of choice up the owls and we'll see you next week